You're listening to part three of a four-part series on the Callan Schism. We have already been introduced to Callan Parish Priest Father Robert O'Keefe, who had an argument with his bishop that provoked him so much that he took his bishop and curates to court in a move that split the loyalties amongst his parishioners. In order to address the upheaval in Callan, Cardinal Cullen was aware that he had to do something about Bishop Walsh. It was generally acknowledged that Bishop Walsh, Bishop of Ossery, was suffering from what was delicately referred to as a softening of the brain and was therefore unable to carry out his duties effectively. In December 1871, a coadjutor bishop was elected. His name was Patrick Moran. Dr Colin Barr is Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Aberdeen and author of the book The European Culture Wars in Ireland, the Callan Schools Affair 1868-81. The way a bishop is appointed in Ireland at this time is the parish priests, not the curates, only the parish priests of the diocese meet and they come up with three names. And those three names are then forwarded to the bishops, the surviving bishops of the province, in this case, the ecclesiastical province of Dublin, of which Cullen is archbishop. And therefore, he presides as archbishop at this election. The bishops will then write their own report on those three names, saying number two, or they're all terrible, or we like number one. Rome will then usually validate that choice, but could do whatever it wants. The Pope can name anybody. So Cullen doesn't short circuit this. But he also doesn't want it to go any particular direction either. But with Cullen standing there looking at them, all the parish priests in Ossery essentially collectively decide the best possible solution is to list Cullen's nephew, Patrick Francis Moran, as their first choice. This looks incredibly suspicious, and indeed it is incredibly suspicious. Moran has no connections to Kilkenny. He's not a bishop. He's, um, he's a very well-trained young man. He'd been trained in Rome. Uh, Cullen had been his guardian. He'd been serving as Cullen's secretary and as the editor of the Irish Ecclesiastical Review. He's a historian, basically. He's already written, at this stage, several books of history. And he seems to be genuinely surprised as the meeting is going. He's the secretary. He's Cullen's secretary at the meeting. And he's kind of looking around going, this isn't how I was expecting things to go. And there's private letters where he's basically, oh, my God, I'm terrified. Though Patrick Moran was filled with dread at the prospect of his new role as Bishop of Ossery, his uncle, Cardinal Cullen, was delighted that there was going to be a good man in the job. A lot of people at the time and since have assumed that Cullen directly manipulated it. He's clearly delighted by the outcome. There's no evidence that Cullen was sending anybody around putting the arm on him. I think the priest just drew their own conclusions. There's his nephew. He seems a bright boy. The Cardinal's right there. He's kind of scary. I think we're going to do this. And I I suspect that in the corridors as they were talking that there was just a consensus of what was prudent. So Morin becomes the coadjutor bishop of Ossery. And that gives him direct authority as well. He's now O'Keefe's bishop. He reiterates the suspension. He brings a convent of the Sisters of Mercy to Callan to set up a school. I don't know if it's a niece or a cousin. He's the first mother superior. Um, They're all tied in together. And they trust family. The Morin... Cullen Maher clans, the famous uh, parish priest of Carlo, James Maher, is Cullen's uncle. Also, the Sisters of Mercy convent in Carlo was run by cousins and nieces. So this is a a family business in a very serious way. So Cullen essentially, however much we can say he manipulates it, he is able to create a situation where an outcome he desires occurs, which is his nephew and his most trusted uh, confidant. 
And this, again, is an, is an indication of how seriously Cullen is taking this. Everything's being brought into control, but O'Keefe's not playing ball. He's still saying Mass. He's whipping up crowds every Sunday after, after Mass. Essentially, it's a scheduled brawl. But there was a turning point. It happened when Bishop Moran came to Callan to do the confirmations. Moran essentially decides not long after he's appointed that he is going to uh, take the bull by the horns, I can use the cliche, and he's going to go to Callan. And he's going to do it in the most provocative way he can. He's going to have confirmations, but not in the parish church, which is where you should, or where you normally would, but in the Augustinian friary. And O'Keefe understands this provocation for what it is. He recognizes that if he doesn't do anything, he will lose status in the town. And this is becoming increasingly important, is if people stop going to the parish church, if people stop backing him, he really has no more options. Where is his money going to come from? So he has to challenge Morin directly. And Morin's private letters after the the confirmation are are hair-raising. They seem to be reasonably well attested. The newspaper accounts are pretty similar. On February the 7th, 1872, the Guardian reports that a group of O'Keefe's supporters attacked the police who drew their bayonets and a fierce conflict ensued, with several people receiving serious injuries. O'Keefe essentially whipped up a mob, Moran's word, and you could hear them, as Moran says, baying as they come down the hill. It was known there were going to be problems, so the Royal Irish Constabulary has deployed, uh, there's horse police, the dragoons are there, swords are drawn at least one point, um, and you know, there's this accounts of the children cowering in the friary, and the children who are to be confirmed, or had been confirmed, as the mob is outside, essentially trying to gain access and destroy the friary, with the police able to keep, and, and the militia able to keep the two sides apart. It's probably the most the, the biggest full-scale dress violence, if you will, where, there, where there's, a, you know, there's O'Keefe, there's Moran on one side, there's the authorities, the state in the middle, uh, there's children involved, there's, there's enormous violence, and things essentially go out of control in Kellen. They probably were, they were out of control already, but it's clear to everybody now that this is not just a faction fight, this is bigger. Uh, and it's getting national attention and indeed international attention now. I think a lot of the strength of feeling in the place over the O'Keefe case had a lot to do with the need or the hunger for authority. I think that in Ireland at the time liked strict authority. It didn't like challenges to authority. Now, I think that that has certainly changed over the past hundred years, you know. And I see the the priest as representing a kind of challenge to deeply felt and deeply held uh, opinions and beliefs. The split, I think, actually, uh, my understanding of it, is that it was the townspeople who turned against O'Keefe and the country people were in support of him, mm. which is an interesting thing in itself. And it may, in fact, be have something to do with the more radical kind of thing that you find in rural people, country people, where they're, they're inclined to be anti-authoritarian. 
and anti-authority. Tom Kilroy there, author of the novel inspired by the O'Keefe Affair and the Callan Schism. The book, called The Big Chapel, begins with a town ashamed of itself and not wanting to talk about the fighting that impinged on the people's lives years previously. It's inevitable that uh, the um, people are unhappy about raking over a story like this because it, uh, no matter how you look at it, it, it casts a, a bad light on, on the place. But at the same time, I think it's, it's important to, to kind of face up to things like this and um, not to shy away from them. Otherwise, there, it, it remains a kind of a thorn and irritant, and uh, it'll uh, cause more disruption. But um, yes, the the question of shame, I think that when you have a community going through um, a trauma, going through some kind of awful common experience, then in fact it requires great courage to confront it and to deal with it. And hopefully this is what you would have in uh, looking back on the, on the story of the O'Keefe affair. But the, um, the novel kind of deals with stuff that departs from the O'Keefe story. And I think that the, the question of, of shame is very much part of the novel. And the question of guilt is very much part of those characters who were at the centre of it in the book. Cardinal Cullen might well have believed that with a new bishop in Ossery, the fighting and rioting in the town might stop, and Father O'Keefe's unhappiness with his superiors might be eliminated. Cullen had, after all, a lot in his plate, as he was taken up with the Ultramontanism debate in Rome. But just what is Ultramontanism, and why is it so important to the Father O'Keefe case? Ultramontanism. It is essentially an argument for the centralisation of ecclesiastical power in Rome. It's the church we know today. And Cardinal Cullen, who's trained in Rome from a young age, he believes this very deeply. This is to him, this is self-evidently true. And he, but he's by no means the only one. This is a majority opinion. So Pope Pius IX wants to clarify this question. He wants a, a final ruling. He believes that the Pope, him, is infallible. Not only does he believe he's infallible, he believes he is ordinarily infallible. And that's a slightly trickier concept which essentially is that anything the Pope does or says has infallible authority. Now, it's not quite, the Pope says, I like oranges, therefore oranges are infallibly good. But it means every encyclical, every papal ruling can never be changed, ever, because it's infallibly true. So a Pope today can't come along and say Mary wasn't a virgin. And that's fine for Catholics, because that's understood to be a dogma. But... Imagine if, for example, any number of papal encyclicals, for example, in 1864, not long before the period we're talking about, the Pope denounces democracy. Pius IX says, this is wrong, it's evil, it's wicked. Now, at the time, that has authority. Catholics are supposed to say, I agree. Democracy is wrong, evil, and wicked. But it's okay if another Pope comes along, as one does, and says, actually, oops, we got that wrong. Times change. Mm -hmm. So what Pius wants is to make that permanent. And that's a big issue. And that's this whole religious and civil liberties. And this people like Whiteside, Gladstone, who's not a bigot, are worried about this. For Callan priest Father Robert O'Keefe, who had just been sacked as parish priest and fired as manager of the Callan National Schools and chaplain of the poorhouse, 
These fears provided an opportunity to further his cause amongst those concerned by the increasing power of the Catholic Church. O'Keefe plays on these actually very cleverly. He writes a book called Ultramontanism versus Civil and Religious Liberty. He doesn't pick that phrase off the floor. He's pulling it out of the newspapers. And he's trying to appeal to people who see this global package of Catholic behavior and that Callan almost becomes a template or a, a, a metaphor for it or a case study. So it's getting all this international attention because A, everybody is paying attention to the council. B, Cullen is a leading figure in the council. And C, he appears to now be using this power to crush this poor man in Callan. Father O'Keefe, however, has no intention of being crushed by anybody. I have been directed by my client, Reverend Robert O'Keefe, to institute legal proceedings against your eminence for printing and publishing of him a defamatory libel reflecting most injuriously upon his character and the sacred office he holds. I do this the deepest regret, but the exigencies of the case leave him with no alternative. Father Robert O'Keefe has now alleged that he was libelled by Cardinal Paul Cullen when he was publicly suspended by him from his role as parish priest of Callan. O'Keefe's argument is that it's a libel because the suspension is a lie because Cullen has no authority. And Cullen demurs. In other words, he says, I didn't actually commit a libel. There is no libel here because I have a defense of, of privilege. And there's several, he, he advances several, four categories, I believe it was in the case. But one was, they can all be boiled down to, I had the authority from the Pope, I investigated, I did so fairly, yeah, and here's all the documents mm-hmm. say that I did, and I suspended this man. So it can't be a libel if it's true. And this actually gets heard in front of the Queen's bench, which is one of the four Irish courts. We don't probably need to go into the others, but this is a mixed bench. So there is Judge Whiteside, who is the Lord Chief Justice, who chairs the panel. But there are also three Catholic judges, all of whom had been liberal MPs, two of whom were quite close to Cullen. Uh, indeed, one of them, his daughter, was a redemptoristine nun, and Cullen tended to write her long personal letters, but only when her father was hearing important cases. And he would never say, tell your dad. It would, he would just be telling her, telling her about his life and his troubles. In his anxiety in the lead-up to the case, Cardinal Cullen also writes to a bishop in Philadelphia, sharing his concerns. A Protestant judge and 12 Protestant jurors will undertake to decide a question of Catholic discipline with which they are totally unacquainted. Of course, the result is almost certain. They would convict me because they look on me as a promoter of what they call ultramontanism. I hope the Sacred Heart of Jesus will take up the cause. If not, I shall fare very badly with an orange judge and jury. O'Keefe's case boils down to a statute going back to the time of Queen Elizabeth I. And one of the big issues in Queen Elizabeth's time was fear of uh, papal edicts, in particular around assassination. So the Pope actually deposed her. And there was a law passed which said that no foreign prince or potentate, and they meant the Pope, that they cannot issue a valid ruling in the United Kingdom, that they have no authority. You could, in later times, say, well, that's the same thing as that the newly created emperor of Germany in 1870 cannot say something in Berlin that has legal effect in Dublin. And In that sense, it's non-controversial. But O'Keefe's legal team 
latches onto this and says, well, hang on a minute. This was intended about the Pope, and this is what we're dealing with here, that you have a situation where the Pope has made Cardinal Cullen apostolic delegate, and on foot of that authority, and only on foot of that authority, has he suspended Father O'Keefe. If that law is still valid, if it has never been repealed, then that's illegitimate. If that's true, then the suspension is not a suspension, then it's libelous, and O'Keefe has lost income as a result. Therefore, you can prove the libel. But this has all kinds of problems. Legally, it's a very, very dangerous line of reasoning for the stability of Ireland, because it's not the only thing the Pope does is create an apostolic delegate to investigate Father O'Keefe. He creates all of the Irish bishops who ordain all of the Irish priests. None of them would be bishops under law. None of the property the church holds or the bishops hold on behalf of the church or the priests hold on behalf of parishes could all be legally dispersed. It would effectively dissolve the Catholic Church in Ireland, O'Keefe's legal theory. And you can imagine the social dislocations in Ireland. Nobody actually, except for Judge Whiteside, nobody wants to go down this road. So what Cullen's team, and he has a very high-power legal team, he's putting serious resources into this, essentially says, look, this is a nonsense. One, this law is from the 16th century. It's not operative. The penalties associated with it were removed in previous legislation. It used to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, all these things. That's been taken away by statute. And they're essentially saying, look, this is completely nonsense. You just cannot go down this road. And the three of the four judges said, yes, that's, that's a madness. You can't, you can't do this. So what they say is Cullen's defensive privilege works if the suspension was administered according to the rules of the Catholic Church. It was Judge O'Brien who delivered the following statement. It is, therefore, but reasonable to hold that by these provisions the legislature impliedly allowed and sanctioned the doctrine that in case not only of bulls or rescripts for the appointment of bishops, but also of all such rescripts as that in question of a purely spiritual character, the parties to whom they were addressed might, without illegality and notwithstanding the former state of the law, affirm and exercise the spiritual authority expressed by such documents to be conferred upon them. It's not going to fall simply because the Pope gave him the authority to do that investigation. But the judges do not rule on whether the suspension itself was valid. Because it's a matter for the civil courts. If you or any of us are terminated by our employer, say, it's legitimate that our employer can terminate us, but only if the employer followed their internal procedures and followed the law. Now we will go to the trial of the facts. And that still leaves the opening because as Lord Chief Justice, Whiteside assigns himself the case. He'll hear it. And as we know from previous programmes, Judge Whiteside is very suspicious of the Catholic Church. It is manifestly unjust for a priest to have his good name and fame brought into public odium, infamy and disgrace, while his grievance is to be hushed up and his mouth closed forever. And now we have raised before us a serious question of constitutional law, viz. whether and how far 
the jurisdiction assumed by the Pope in pursuance of an alleged contract of the plaintiff, or by virtue of the general discipline of the church, has arisen above the level of the law, and has infringed on that long and ancient series of statutes which assert the principles of the common law and the supremacy of the crown. So the scene of a Roman Catholic cardinal in protocol a prince before the courts, before a notorious Protestant bigot, the Lord Chief Justice, brought by one of his own priests, was just an astonishing sight. And they had a terrible time filling a jury. Whiteside manipulated the jury search uh, shamelessly. Uh, although the change in the jury law in the late 1860s, early 1870s, meant he couldn't keep all the Catholics off the jury, although he did his best. So Cullen is led through his testimony by his own barrister. What did you do, uh, Your Eminence? Why did you do it, Your Eminence? When did you write this letter? What were you thinking? And it's all very, I did this, 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 and it was incredibly well organized. Under cross-examination by O'Keefe's lawyers, they went for Cullen because they're trying to prove that either he'd made up his mind beforehand and therefore the procedure was flawed, Again, using the model of an intermination, your employer has to show there was an investigation where there was a chance of at least more than one outcome. There was due process, exactly. So they're trying to attack him on that. And they're actually, he's vulnerable here. And Cullen is very careful because he clearly had been involved secretly, indirectly, in, in judging O'Keefe. There was clearly never going to be anything other than a suspension as the outcome. So in several instances, and one in particular that I was able to document, he essentially lies under oath. You may not remember, but Cardinal Connell, the late Cardinal Connell in Dublin, in discussing some of the sex abuse allegations, and the issue was you cannot tell a lie, but you can allow other people to believe something false and you can perhaps even intend that outcome. And that's called mental reservation because that is permissible because the truth is not something they need to have. And Connell got flogged for this in the media, and quite rightly, in my opinion. But he got caught. Cullen, he didn't get caught. And, I mean, O'Keefe's barristers are very good. You know, he's, not, he's not hiring the B team. And this is, of course, he's already spending, spending more and more and more money. Well, they're working on uh, the basis of, of a hoped-for win. It's essentially not pro bono. They will get paid if they win, but it's uh, contingent. And these are all you know, leading Protestant lawyers. You know, this is the high-profile case. But Cullen skates them. They don't understand canon law well enough. And there are, there are several occasions where Cullen, he doesn't say something that's actually untrue. He says something that everyone believes in an untrue way. There was one particular instance. The issue, again, is did Cullen follow the proper procedures? And what O'Keefe's barrister wanted to know in particular is when did he first become made aware of the case? And when had he been told? And the issue was a communication with Bishop Walsh. And Cullen spoke very carefully. He thought he had, hadn't spoken about it with Bishop Walsh. He'd only heard about it. And that's, of course, implied to everybody that you, you haven't had any communication. But, of course, he had. He'd had a letter. He'd read it. So he never said, I didn't know or I didn't read. I didn't speak. Now, to any reasonable listener, including O'Keefe's barrister, that was a clear answer. 
and had somebody then produced the letter in question, which Cullen did not volunteer, then they would have said, you've lied. Cullen undoubtedly would have said, I didn't lie. You didn't ask me, when did I read? When did I receive a letter from Bishop Walsh? And that, again, that's that concept of mental reservation. You've not told a lie, but you have told the truth in such a way that you know people will take a false meaning away. Please give the court your full name. O'Keefe is unable to match such clever thinking. O'Keefe is well-educated. He was clearly a successful student. He's clearly clever. But he's not playing in the same league at all. I mean, Cullen, in Rome, when he was being trained in the 1820s, he was the star student for the entire Rome. He won every prize. He learned what languages he had. French, Italian, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Chaldean, a Syriac language. Uh, He was, for a time, professor of Oriental languages. He was involved in the uh, creation of a polyglot Bible, so basically all the Bible in every language for each verse. You know, he's a protege of Pope Gregory XVI. Cullen is on a different plane. I mean, O'Keefe is really out of his depth. He doesn't know he is. That's one of the things about O'Keefe. He doesn't get it. He thinks he's this man's superior intellectually. And he's just not. He's not playing on the on the same level. As you can imagine, this got enormous international attention. The New York Times sends a correspondence. You know, this is an era where that mattered. And both sides have invested huge resources. Cullen has retained the services of uh, the leading barrister in Ireland, a man called Robert Armstrong, who is a Protestant. He had uh, won a parliamentary election for Sligo, which got thrown out on grounds of corruption. And Sligo was actually suppressed as a parliamentary seat for a while. It was seen as being irredeemably corrupt. Apologies to anyone in Sligo. But he was this tremendous bruising barrister, just destructive in cross-examination. Here is just a sample of the dramatic court proceedings. What do you mean when you say your income has been reduced by two-thirds? Did you not previously claim that the people stood by you? Do they not despise the interdict? The people of Callan have drawn away from me very much laterally. Can you claim to understand canon law? Understand plain questions? Yes, I understand. What is canon law? You told me you were an expert. What is canon law? I am not a child to be put through an examination. The question has been asked, and it is your business, quietly, to answer. And he hammers them, how much money did you get from the nuns? When were you going to give it back? Why haven't you given it back? You got this, this money from Bishop Walsh when he paid you. Where did that money go? Did the nuns ever get the money back? They did not. I had not intended that they would. All I had intended to do was to pay back Bishop Walsh when or if he relented on the nuns' coming. Who got it? It was never... Who a... got it? It was never intended... Who got it? I got it. So you have not paid a penny of it to man or woman living, man or bishop? No. What do you mean when you said you intended to pay the money to the nuns? I intended that. Your intentions were good? Yes. But your performances, short. I had only intended to protect my own honor. Everybody is wrong but Father O'Keefe. O'Keefe did very badly. Partly because Robert Armstrong was very, very aggressive. O'Keefe overconfidence or arrogance, I think, led him not to prepare as well as he could. Essentially, Armstrong led him into several traps, as a good uh, barrister doing cross-examination will. And in O'Keefe's case, he essentially gets him to say, I would not submit even if the angels of heaven told me. 
In other words, it doesn't matter about process. O'Keefe is going to be right. If the Pope in person expressed the opinion to O'Keefe that his conduct was unacceptable and consequently suspended him, would you obey him? I would not. I would not submit if an angel of heaven told me. You would have your own way, though a Gabriel told you? I would have the right way. The right way is your way. They are synonymous terms. You are pleased to say so. It made O'Keefe look weak, money-grubbing, stealing from nuns. He collapsed completely on the stand. It was a genuinely disastrous performance. Neutral observers were very clear on this. Uh, now, again, I, I have a certain degree of sympathy for O'Keefe here. Armstrong was terrifying. Cullen paid him a lot of money to do exactly what he did. Still and all, O'Keefe has Lord Chief Justice Whiteside, bent on his own power struggle, trying to cover his back. Whiteside tries to help him during the cross-examination. Wouldn't it be this? And he's trying to lead him to safe ground. Not very successfully. Mm. Because he's, he, he, Whiteside is trying to lay the groundwork for where he knows he's going, which he's going to say that it's, it's almost, there are some contracts that are not legitimate. For example, you can't sell yourself into slavery. That's not a legitimate contract. It cannot be enforced. He's trying to go down that road that the Catholic Church cannot enforce, even as a private members club, this barrier against suing one another. And if that's true, then he can still get to the position where the suspension was false, therefore a libel, therefore O'Keefe lost money, therefore a court judgment. But Judge Whiteside is not both judge and jury, or is he? The jury's mixed. There's, I think, a slight Protestant majority. The natural outcome of this was always going to be a hung jury. Irish juries are incredibly politicized. This is a hugely political case. The odds of them being able to give a unanimous verdict either way were essentially nil. So they are sent to deliberate and they come back after about 30 minutes and say, we can't, we, we can't get there. And it's not unreasonable that Whiteside sends them back to try again, you know, do a little bit more work. But he adds something. He says, actually, there's very little for you to discuss. Father O'Keefe is entitled in law to his verdict. Your job is only to register that fact and decide on damages. That's called a directed verdict. Now, in the um, common law tradition, which Ireland was a part, still is, that happens for acquittal. So at, at an end of a trial, a judge can say to a jury, look, there has been not an adequate evidence. I direct you to acquit the defendant. And that's to avoid the risk of an of a unsafe verdict. But it can't direct a guilty verdict. That mm. defeats the purpose. So the jury goes away five or ten minutes and says, well, we've been ordered to, to do this by the Lord Chief Justice of Ireland, so I guess we do. And they awarded one farthing damages, uh, which, of course, is, says what they think of it. Crucially, however, Whiteside then awards costs to O'Keefe. And that's a lot because all those expensive high-end barristers O'Keefe had been employing were being paid on spec. Mm. They only get it if they win, and they can submit whatever bill they like. And Cullen is not, A, he doesn't want to pay the money. He could probably find it, but it would be some thousands of pounds, which is a lot of money then. But he also doesn't want to hand that kind of money to O'Keefe. But more importantly, Whiteside has done something that astonishes the entire legal profession in Ireland and in Britain, which is that, A, he has directed a verdict, an adverse verdict, but also in the context of libel. And this gets picked up immediately by the British legal newspapers. 
The Law Times wrote that the whole case is a matter of such importance and of such vital consequences to every individual whose character is defamed that the advisers of the Cardinal should not lose a moment in carrying the case into Banco. The paper could anticipate nothing but a rule absolute for a new trial on the grounds of misdirection. Meanwhile, Cardinal Cullen was very disgruntled by the outcome. Whiteside has not respected law or facts and has acted like a modern Caiaphas and perverted everything. It's a sign of how committed Whiteside was, how genuinely afraid he was of what he perceives to be this ultramontane tyranny, that he, he must have known that the Queen's bench would overrule him, the three Catholic judges, which they do. But that takes some more time. Notionally, although nothing ever happened from this, until that was overturned by the full bench, for all practical purposes, the Catholic Church had been dissolved in Ireland. The Queen's Bench suspended the ruling about a week later, and then there was a full hearing some time later when it was formally overturned. No, nothing, I say nothing actually came from that, but it, that's the sense of the, the, the gravity of the legal process behind it. But Whiteside had ignored everything. And the farthing was the jury basically trying to say. But then there were death threats to the jury. There were uh, pamphlets signed nemesis circulating in Dublin to the Catholic jurors. The Protestant jurors, nobody expected anything else from them, apparently. But the Catholic jurors were told they were worse than Luther. Tune into part four to explore how the English government felt about this affair. This Skinny on the Schism was presented and produced by Monica Hayes with special thanks to expert contributor Dr. Colin Barr, acting by Joe Murray, Jer Cody, Des Manahan, John Hayes, Donal O'Brien and Owen Carey. It was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.